what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read a large section of Mark. I'm going to start at Mark 7, verse 24, all the way through Mark chapter 8, verse 26, and uh, to remind us again about the uniqueness of Mark's gospel. You'll remember that this gospel, more than the others, um, tells a story just through the flow of the activity. And it is action-packed, of course. It's a very vivid description of events. And we concluded early on that probably Mark wrote it to actually be read out loud for people to hear because so many people were illiterate at the time he wrote it. And when you go through Mark, you just get that sense that, wow, it's such an exciting, active story. And so we're going to recapture that a little bit today by reading a larger section of the, of the text. Um, and you remember at this point in the Gospel is when we had just finished hearing the miracle of the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile. And even before that, it's so clear to everybody that has eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus is God on earth, right? I mean, how many miracles does he have to perform to convince people? Even from the beginning, in chapter 1, you remember in Mark chapter 1, there's like seven different miracles he performs in that first chapter. First, he teaches with authority. Immediately then, he casts out a demon. He heals a man in the synagogue. He then goes on to heal the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He makes the lame to walk. As the chapters go on, he says, I am the man who can forgive sins. He's God. He says, not only do I do miracles, but I can forgive sins. That's offensive to the teachers of the law, Pharisees and the uh, scribes. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He demonstrates his power over nature. He stops the wind. He stops the waves. He walks on the water. Um, he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He feeds 5,000. Okay, he does all that. The disciples see it. The people who will never be disciples and who are sort of superficial believers, they see it. The Pharisees see a lot of it. At least they hear about a lot of it. And at this point, Jesus has thousands and thousands of people. Wherever he goes, people are flocking. So it's dramatic, right? It's very obvious that something uh, majestic and godly is here. And so that brings us to where we are now. And you remember last week I mentioned that in chapter 7, verse 24, is where you do start to see a turning point in the ministry where he's focusing more on the disciples, Okay, he's got maybe a year left, maybe less. He's heading to the cross. He's got to teach his disciples some truths, and he's going to focus his attention more and more on them. And this is the turning point that you see in, in Mark's gospel. And after he heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, I'll read Matthew's account just to really tee this up before we launch into the text, where in Matthew's account, of chapter 15, verse 29, it says, Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So this is the scene that we are at right now in Mark's gospel. So, and all along, remember, there's belief and there's unbelief. The Pharisees and the scribes are still conspiring to kill him. 
They wanted to destroy him way back in Mark chapter 3. And all along, we see the disciples, we sort of made fun of them. They continually appear to be dull, right? They, they continually appear to be dull, and we've, we've noticed that. Okay, before I read it, I want to point out one other thing. If you will flip your page over and just look at Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Okay, there's 16 chapters in Mark. This is the middle of the book, chapter 8, verse 29. Almost dead center in the middle of the book. And you'll read there, this is when Jesus asks, who do they say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And Peter says, uh, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. So this is the doctrinal high point of Mark's gospel. So Peter gets it at that point. After all this has been done, Peter acknowledges, you are the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you are the Christ. Unfortunately, three verses later, uh, when Jesus starts telling them, well, the anointed one is going to die and suffer. And, and turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and this is verse 33, and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are, setting, are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So just keep that in mind. That's where we're going to go to in a week or so. God willing, if we get through this section today, we'll probably be there next week. But that's where we're going to, and where we came from is this whole backdrop of all the miracles, etc. The clarity of who Jesus is. And right between those is this section. And I'll just go ahead right now and read it, and it's about 40 verses, so if you can follow along with me. And as I read it, pay attention to a few things. There's several miracles here. Just pay attention to how they're all different. The really unique ways that Jesus performs the miracles in these people. So just pay attention to that and think, well, why is that? Some of them seem strange, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, you can look at the response of those who witness the miracles, especially the one of the deaf man. And that's in chapter 7, verse 36. If you want to, I don't know, pencil or just pay attention when I get there to 736, and we'll talk about the response of those people who see the deaf man um, healed. Uh, we'll also see again the disciples' short memory span when he feeds the 4,000 and they ask, How, where are we going to get food? So pay attention to that. Uh, pay attention to in chapter 8, verse 11, when the Pharisees request him, request that he perform a sign. They say, perform for us a sign. We want to roll our eyes, but we'll talk about that. What sign are they looking for? And then we'll finish with the really interesting miracle of Jesus um, healing this blind man in sort of two stages. This is the scene where he heals him. He sort of sees cloudy, like men walking around like trees. He can't quite see him, and then he heals him a second time. So we'll, we'll talk about that and what that means. All right, I'll start at uh, chapter 7, verse 24. It says, Jesus... Oh, and so I'm going to repeat for us the teaching from last week, and then that will go into our teaching for this week. So we'll back up to 7:24. It says, Jesus got up, and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. He's entering Gentile territory, really probably to get a little rest or to get away from the crowds, but also to witness the Gentiles. So he enters this region of Tyre. Uh, after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, and the Syrophoenician of the Syrophoenician race. And Matthew tells us she was a Canaanite. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered and said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And so she's an example of great humility, saying, I know, but I'll take what you give me. I know I'm a Gentile, but I'll take what you give me. And he said to her, because of this answer, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought him to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave, orders, gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Well, and he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that he had no bread, that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces you picked up? They said 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and, restored, and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. 
and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So, a lot there. Great section uh, of this gospel, I think, leading up to Peter's confession. So, I want to go back through and unpack some of these things that um, for us. First thing I'll notice is if you go back to chapter 7, verse 31, after he uh, throws the demon out of the, the woman's daughter, it says, he returned from the region of Tyre and went to Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Well, if you look at your maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see that Tyre is in the northwestern portion, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 or 30 miles. And if you look at your map where it talks about the ministry of Jesus, most of them probably won't even have um, Sidon in it. Mine didn't. You have to go all the way to a different map to look at Palestine, the greater area. And so Sidon is quite a bit further north, deep, deep, deep into Gentile pagan territory. All right. So this is in verse 31 when he says he went from Tyre through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so he's Tyre way up to Sidon and then way back down around probably east of the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee. So I had my string out on my map and it probably close to 100 miles is what this trip is. So uh, it gives the impression maybe he just went there the next day, but we're talking probably two or three months to walk that 100 miles, and it's not like you could walk from Atlanta to Chattanooga along 75, right, and just do it in a few days or a week or something. So it would have probably taken two or three months. And so this is the two or three months where Jesus is this walking, teaching ministry with his disciples as he's going through the region of the Gentiles. And they end up in the region of the capitalists, which means ten cities. So it's just this Roman region to the east of the Sea of Galilee. It would be like walking from Atlanta to Chattanooga. It's about 100 miles. Um, so deep in the Gentile territory and a time of teaching for his uh, disciples. They brought in this man who was deaf with a speech impediment. And... The New American Standard, actually, in verse 33, where it says he touched his tongue with the saliva, uh, it's the only English translation that uses that particular phrase, with the saliva. Your other ones say something like he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. So it's not too clear he actually touched his tongue with the saliva. He, he, I think what he did was, you have a deaf man, he's using sign language, and he, and he puts his fingers in his ears like, I'm going to you know, fix your ears. And then he might spit and touch his tongue saying, I'm going to help you talk. So that's, uh, to me, the best explanation of what he's doing. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a nice way of Jesus to compassionately say, I'm going to fix your ears and your tongue. So he may have spit on his tongue or on his tongue and touched it with his saliva, but the text doesn't actually say that, and your other translations don't necessarily uh, indicate that. So, but the point is, it, it's just a nice scene and a, a good example of Jesus's gentleness. He takes him aside, right, and he tells him what he's going to do, and then he heals him. It's, it's really tender and really nice, and I think demonstrates Jesus's compassion for this poor man. We, we know he had compassion because he sighed deeply. Well, it's actually, he just, yeah, sighed deeply in verse 34, and that sigh is like a, he just has compassion on this poor guy, and he heals him. And it, It's a wonderful scene and a demonstration of his power and his kindness. And it's a pretty vivid account, right? Touching him and fingers and ears, and it's just a very vivid account authenticating, really, that an eyewitness saw this. 
probably Peter who told Mark. Um, and you'll note that he's instantly healed, as were most people, almost all of them. I think this scene we're going to talk about in a few minutes is the only one where the guy wasn't instantly healed, or at least in two stages. But we've talked about miracles, true miracles before. They're, they're clear, and they're instant. There's no ambiguity about it. And this is another example of one of those miracles that's a real miracle. And he heals him, not only his ears, but he's able to speak, Right? And it says here in the text that he, he couldn't speak very well. As you know, people who are deaf can't speak very well because they can't hear and they can't make words. And so it, the point is he healed both his hearing and his speech. And the people were utterly astonished by it. Utterly astonished. Um, so they're utterly astonished, but they're also completely disobedient, Right? They're utterly astonished by this great sign. It's a miracle. Look at that. And then if you look at verse uh, 36, he says, He gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. So a little segue here. It's just so interesting. And again, an example of um, superficial belief in these people. Because if you believe and have faith, what is like the first thing you also do? Hmm? Obey, right? And so that's another not-so-subtle vision you have here in Mark's testimony. They believe, they're utterly astonished. He says, don't tell anybody, but they disobey him. So it's a superficial belief, and it's an indication that they probably, most of them, didn't have true faith. So admiration of Jesus is not the same as faith. A lot of people admire Jesus as a great teacher, a compassionate man. He loved people. He was a social reformer, all these things. He stood up for the little people. But if you don't obey him, you don't have faith. It's interesting because most of the time when he said that, they immediately started telling everybody. Yeah. All through the gospel. Right. Despite his... Mm-hmm. And, and in Mark, you actually, this is not new. Several times Jesus has stopped. Don't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Sometimes he does say, go back to your home like the, uh, the demon possessed man in chapter 5, he said, go to your home and proclaim it. But, yeah, a lot of times he says, go home and, and repent of your sins and don't tell anybody. So if they got home to Sodom and got into the Mel's there the other day, said, how can you love Jesus? Everybody's, honk, honk, honk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a neat, uh, maybe it's an analogy. There's a so, of superficial understanding. So, but But we know that Real faith will follow with real obedience. It's the mark of our faith. It's one of the fruits of it. Faith requires obedience. And for all the um, poking fun we've had at the disciples, right, of how they're so dull, if you think about it, what is the one thing they did? Followed Jesus. I want to read some of the verses, even in Mark. So, you forget about these because they, they seem so dull, and we, they're just glaringly obvious. But don't forget some of these other verses in Mark that I'll just read for us. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, Peter and Andrew. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with hired servants and went away to follow him. Mark chapter 2. 
As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, this is Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Same guys who don't understand the feeding things, right? but they're following Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. All right, Mark chapter 3, verse 33, answering them, he said, who, okay, this is after his, his Mary, his mother, and his brothers and probably close relatives come to see him in Nazareth because he's there teaching in the synagogue, and they think he's losing his mind. Remember we talked about this intervention they're going to have, and they're going to take him away because he's just saying these crazy things, and they're worried about him. And they say, your, your mother and your brothers are out there. And this is where his answer is. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So again, telling us we do what he says. We follow him. We are obedient to his word and his truth and his instruction. Later on in Mark chapter 10, we'll read about Peter. It says, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. That was true. They did. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that even though the disciples are weak, they don't have complete understanding at times. The mark of their discipleship and their true faith and that they were his chosen people, they did follow him. And unlike the other people nearby who are astonished and they admire him and they think he's, it's wonderful, all these miracles, but they're not going to follow him. That was Mark 10, verse 28. Through 31. If you, if you love me, obey my commands, right? I mean, that is the mark of our love for him and our discipleship is that we obey Jesus. Any other thoughts on that section at the end of chapter 7? Okay, well, let's look at this section on feeding the 4,000. Really, those nine verses, the first nine verses of chapter 8. And liberal scholars think that this is the same event as the feeding of the 5,000. But clearly, that is not coming anywhere from the text. I mean, it's so obvious that the Bible calls these two completely separate. I mean, here in Mark, it's obvious. But I'll just point out some other differences between the two that just confirm for us. Don't ever fall for the idea that, well, the gospel writers, they just told stories, and sometimes they weren't that accurate. They just taught a principle. No, they're accurate, exactly, and there are two events. He fed 5,000, and he fed 4,000. Um, the location is different. One was in Bethsaida. This one is in Decapolis. This one is, they were with him for three days. By the way, it's interesting. So these people, mostly Gentiles, we're with him for three days. I mean, I don't they had a backpack with some food for a couple days to get by or not, but basically they're following him around, these huge crowds, and watching his miracles, being astounded by him for three days. And then 
in the feeding of the 5,000, it clearly says they're out there for one day on the mountain. So that's a difference. This audience here is Gentile area. Remember, he, Tyre, Sidon, all the way back around the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, this is mostly Gentiles, as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000, which is mostly Jews, just to the east in Bethsaida. So that's a difference. There's different reactions to it in Mark's account. We don't really hear how they reacted, but in the feeding of the 5,000, or I'm sorry, the 4,000, you don't hear how they reacted. In the 5,000, we read that clearly they were trying to make him king, and he had to send the disciples away because he didn't want them to get caught up in all of that. Uh, there's other differences. The loaves, a different number of loaves, different number of fish. And this is interesting. There's different size baskets. Um, to note, in chapter 8, verse 8, this word for basket is um, spurious. Basically, it, it, it describes a much larger, like a big hamper thing, than the kind of baskets that are described in the account at the 5,000. It's the same word, by the way, that in Acts, chapter 9, when Peter's, or Paul's let down by night, it says his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. It's the same word. So the point is, in the feeding of the 5,000, there was a huge amount of food left over, filling up these big baskets. And in this one, Jesus goes with his disciples after he feeds 4,000. In the other one, he did not go with them. He sent them away, and he stayed in Bethsaida for a while. So I guess all that to say, they're two different events. Right. Right. Exactly. And then later on in this text, Jesus said, do you remember the 5,000? Yes. Remember the four? So it's clearly different events. And in this one, uh, I'll just point out that in verse 2 of chapter 8, I feel compassion for the people. So this is the only place in the uh, New Testament where Jesus says he feels compassion. There's other texts that note he felt compassion, but this is the only place where he says he feels compassion for the people. So that's notable. He, he has compassion on Gentiles, and a lot of them probably weren't going to be believers. Um, and it's notable, like I said before, that these people were so um, enthralled with his miracles, they kind of forgot to eat for three days. They didn't care about what they're going to do. They're just following him around. It's another wonderful description. Um, And then in verse 4, we'll talk about this. His disciples answered him, Where will we be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? So I'd like to hear from the crowd. What do you think is going on in their minds? What do you think? I mean, this is shortly after the feeding of the 5,000. What? You, any ideas on that? They were hungry too. Yes, they were hungry too. And maybe they're just distracted by their hunger and had forgotten the previous miracles? Yeah, I think that they may have just, they, they just were dense. They just really didn't see it. Any other, any other ideas? They Maybe. Maybe they were just concerned about what the crowd thought. Right. I think that's a possibility. That's actually what MacArthur says. MacArthur says, it was probably a little tongue-in-cheek, what are we going to do, you know, or to feed these 4,000? So they may have said it like that. I think that's a possibility. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it does say they were saying to themselves, how are we going to do this? So yeah, maybe they just didn't want to presume on Jesus' power and his ability to do that. He'd done enough. They just didn't want to keep presuming on him. Yeah, I think all those are decent uh, answers. Uh, I think it's a little far-fetched to think that even in their state of spiritual immaturity, that they forgot about the 5,000 miracle. So I think it's um, probably in the back of their head, they, they must have just had that thought, but either didn't want to presume, or it's, a, it's just a soft, passive, weak way of saying, Jesus, can you make more food for us again? Uh, another thought is that, remember what distinguished uh, Jewishness. One of them was the meals. And that culturally was a time where clearly the Jews ate here and the Gentiles ate here. Clearly that separated the people. Um, and if you think about where Jesus just took them through the Gentile territory for two or three months, uh, really showing them probably in their, their prejudices that the disciples had clearly that still Jews are the Jews and the Gentiles are Gentiles and you're Jewish and we're Jewish. And so they no doubt still had in their mind Jewishness, Messiahs for the Jewish people. So using this whole scene to show them so they can remember after Pentecost, yeah, it's open to the whole world. Um, This may have been part of that whole learning process where culminating after that trip is the meal. And they still didn't get that, well, we're going to eat a meal with these Gentiles that may have been another barrier for them to consider. And so they may have thought, well, they should go somewhere else and eat. And they may not have thought that Jesus would feed the Gentiles like he fed the Jewish people. I think it's another possibility or another barrier in their mind. Um, So I do want to just read for you. MacArthur has a good paragraph on this that I, I thought was good. So I'll just read it for you. He says, From the church fathers onward, the church has rightly perceived that in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus brings saving bread to the Gentiles as he brought it earlier to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000. The journey to the Gentiles in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 8, 9, so this section just before this, has evinced that they are neither beyond the reach of salvation, the Gentiles, nor inured to it. Like the book of Jonah, the three vignettes in Mark reveal that, so these three vignettes, he's talking about these, these three miracles we've just read, the Syrophoenician woman, the healing of the deaf man, and the feeding of the 4,000, all to the Gentiles, reveal that supposed Gentile outsiders are in fact surprisingly receptive to the word of God in Jesus. The journey of Jesus to Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis proves that although the Gentiles are ostracized by the Jews, they are not ostracized by God. Jewish invective against the Gentiles does not reflect a divine invective. There is a lesson here for the people of God in every age that its enemies are neither forsaken by God nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. So I think it's a good summary of probably what's going on here. He's just showing them that uh, they're not beyond my reach. You may have prejudices against these people. I don't. I'll feed them just like I fed the others. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I think exactly. He deliberately went out into that area to teach them this lesson and to save those people who were the Gentiles. Yeah. Right. You know, and then when it comes to raising the dead, how much more? Yeah. I mean, just starting with Lazarus, but, you know, I think he raises himself from the dead. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it is the, the picture that Mark is writing. It, it, think of it, what he just said. It's so true. It's so much more than what Elijah could do with one widow. It's feeding thousands of people, and thousands are following him. And then there's these baskets left for everybody. Right, it's just an accurate, perfect picture for people who have eyes to see and ears to hear that understand what's going on here. And remember, too, Mark's gospel was written to be read, probably, to the Gentiles. This was written, probably intended audience was the Roman people. And uh, for them to hear this story, not knowing much or anything about Jewish history or Jewish culture, they could even understand what's going on. Especially when, that's a great segue, when you get to verse 10, so we've covered that, the miracle of 4,000. Verse 10, again, the picture here. With the Gentiles, feeding the Gentiles, teaching the apostles by example what's going on. And then verse 10, And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Del Manutha. Okay? It's like immediately leaves the Gentiles, goes to Jewish territory. And who greets him there? Verse 11, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So what a great picture, right? What a great picture. These months of ministry comes into sort of enemy territory, which shouldn't be enemy territory. It should be the experts that can see what has happened and who he is. And what do they do? They say, wow, come talk to us. You must be God. You're, look at what's going on. You must be what has been prophesied. We, help us understand this. No. They say, show us a sign. <laughs> what would you do? Well, Jesus deeply sighed when he heard that. So um, it says the Pharisees came. Oh, by the way, the Delmanutha, you won't find it in your maps. It's an unknown city now. We don't know where that is. And then in Matthew's account, the parallel account says that it was the region of Magadan, which is also exactly unknown. It's not in our Bibles. But... The idea is um, they got in a boat and they're going to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Pharisees come. They begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Matthew's account says it's not just the Pharisees. Well, let's see here. It's um, uh, yeah. Uh, Matthew's account said it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him. And testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So it's a contrast where he's going back to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but it's also like another warning, you know, it's like an ominous sign of what's going on. The persecution from the Pharisees and the Sadducees is 
is coming and it's persistent and they're waiting for him and they're going to test him. Um, this is the first time you see the Sadducees going this far from Jerusalem in the Gospels. They're, they're all the way now going up into Galilee to confront Jesus. And, of course, you'll remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees were pretty much enemies, right? They didn't get along. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So they're teaming up here because Jesus is now their common enemy. Someone said, extremes of error combined from a hatred of the truth. I can't remember which of the commentators I put that in. That's a great summary. These two have extremes of error. The Pharisees are erroneous in their legalism, the Sadducees in their secularism. So these extremes of error um, combine from a hatred of the truth. So that's a great way of, of looking at these two groups. Uh, their request demonstrates clearly spiritual blindness, right? They're clearly spiritually blind. God on earth is here, and they're asking him for a sign after he's performed literally thousands of signs. They ask for a sign from heaven. Chrysostom, he's a, he's a uh, church father, uh, two or three hundreds. Uh, uh, anyway, he, he says here, they do not specify what precise sign they want. I like this, that he should stop the sun or rain in the moon or hurl down thunder or the like. So we're not sure what sign they're actually asking for, but they do want a sign from heaven. And MacArthur points out that they're, we're probably asking for some celestial sign because the belief back then of the superstition was that God would perform signs from heaven like a, um, uh, a controlling nature or the sun or the moon or something like that, and that miracles performed on earth were really um, not legitimate. They were tricks. So they, so they may have been thinking, well, we want a, sign, a celestial sign from heaven. But the point is, they're really not just honest skeptics. They're not, because it says here that they did it to test him. And we know that what their heart is from previous uh, sections of Scripture. So the point is, no matter what sign he did, it wasn't going to be enough. No matter what Jesus did, they weren't going to believe it because their hearts were cold and they're permanently been blinded. They're not just these honest type skeptics. And it says here that they did it in order to test him. So they thought his miracles were, were, um, were dubious. They didn't believe it, and they want more. And they probably expected, even if he did try to perform a sign from heaven, that he wouldn't, he, he'd fail, because that was probably their expectation. And when Jesus hears them say that, it says he sighed deeply. And this word, by the way, it's, um, it is a... Uh, stronger word than what we read earlier in verse 34 chapter 7 when he sighed when he saw the deaf man and he, he sighed like in compassionate sigh this is a different word it's, it's actually um, it means he groaned upward so it, it apparently really speaks to this deep guttural painful groaning about what they're asking him to do it's like we know why right because Jesus enters Jerusalem and he weeps because he knows those people are they're just blind they're not going to believe in him they're going to be judged and they're, they're not going to have eternal life so this deep deep groaning and sighing uh, speaks to that he sighs deeply in his spirit and he asks why does this generation seek a sign truly I say to you no sign will be given this generation 
All right. Thoughts, please, before I go on. When he says no sign will be given this generation, how do you think he means that? No sign will be given. He's given them all sorts of signs. Right. So you want to say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, there's a million signs. Yeah, no sign will be perceived by the sign. Right. Right. No sign will be given that they will understand. Right. That's right. which we talk, we'll talk about the sign of Jonah in a minute because Matthew's account actually amplifies this answer a little bit. But I do want to read another commentator for you here at this point. Uh, this D. Edmund Hebert says, Sigh deeply, this word sigh deeply, is an intensive compound form occurring only here in the New Testament. This intensive literal form means groaned upwardly, indicating that the groan welled up from the very depths of his inner being. Jesus was deeply distressed by the moral perversity of these Jewish leaders. He groaned sympathetically in the presence of the physical suffering, but obstinate sin evoked a deeper reaction for him. This reference to the emotional reaction of Jesus is peculiar to Mark, apparently derived from Peter's vivid memory. So the question is, why does this generation seek a sign? Uh, and you want to answer this by saying, you know, who... <laughs> Think of the posture. Who, who are they actually to demand God perform a sign? Who are they? Who do they think they are for, to demand that God in front of them perform a sign? It's like he's to do their bidding. That is not right. That's why he groaned. Jesus saw their heart. He saw their motivation. He saw where they're coming from. These self-righteous, um, false teachers. So who are they to, to demand anything from God? Um, so he, they're demanding God answer their demands. It reminds me of Romans 9 when uh, Paul says, well, who are you to talk back to God, right? Remember Romans 9? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? The same idea. Who are we to talk back to God? And who are they to demand from Jesus to, to perform some sort of sign? If you read Matthew's account, I'll just read it for us which amplifies Mark's here. It's uh, Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now listen to what happens here. But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So he's saying to them, you can be weathermen. You can see the basics. You know, the sky changes. You know a storm's coming, etc. You're able to see that, but you're not able to see something else that's even more true, which is God is right here in front of you performing miracles, and you just can't even see that. He also, I'll read this other account in Matthew about Jonah because we'll talk about that for a minute. It's in Matthew chapter 12, which is four chapters before this section I just read. It says, But he answered and said to them, to them An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet, no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so this is going to... Uh, um, 
educate us on what he really probably means by Jonah's sign. So just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. So think of this. The men of Nineveh, you know, Jonah was sent there. Jonah did not want to go. He, he was Jewish. The Ninevites did not deserve God's grace. I am not going to go to Nineveh, right? Sort of like maybe what the, apostles, the disciples were thinking when they're in the Gentile territory. And so Jesus is teaching them. So um, the men of Nineveh who were saved because they repented will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Ninevites repented. This generation didn't. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. This is referring to... Um, when Solomon was king, and the queen of the south, queen of Egypt? Sheba. Sheba, thank you, yeah. Queen of Sheba came up, and this is what he's referring to. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. So they're saying she saw the majesty of God, but she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So essentially, you, you basically have an emphatic, strong rejection by Jesus of their request. I'm not going to perform a sign. You won't believe it. And the sign is a sign of Jonah, which is um, referring to Jesus himself. He will raise from the dead. He will be demonstrate himself as the Messiah who conquered death. And that sign, they won't see it. And, that, and that, so that is what he's referring to. This is a rejection of their request and a prelude to their judgment that they're not going to see this sign. Mm-hmm. Right up to the land of Canaan. Yeah. Sent in Joshua and Caleb. And ten yep. others as far. Yep. Ten of them said, We're done for. Mm-hmm. And Joshua and Caleb said, It's all ours. Mm-hmm. You know, just all we gotta do then is walk in and take it. Yep. And they it wouldn't believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, the Redeemer coming. You know? yep. And they they reject him because he doesn't honor their tradition. He can't be Messiah because he doesn't honor all these mm-hmm. window dressings we've added to God's commandments. Right. So they have eyes that can't see. And what they're looking for is something different, something of their own making. That, you know, these Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of us humans who don't see Jesus have our own idols, our own gods, our own expectations, and people who aren't saved are not able to repent and see it. And the, and the sign of Jonah is still there for Jews that they want to see today. Right. That are people who were not God's, you know, the, the descendants of Abraham mm-hmm. enthusiastically embraced the message. Yep. Yeah, so it's still, the sign is still there, absolutely, and that's the hope we hold out to all people, Jew and Gentile, still. Jonah's message wasn't flowery. They walked in the streets for just a little while and said, repent. Yeah. Destruction is coming if you don't. Even in the time period. That's right, the destruction's on the way. Said, and Nineveh is done. Yep. Yes. So the point here, though, he intentionally does not leave them, give them an answer. 
it's the end of the discussion, and he moves on. It makes me think of the don't cast your pearls before swine. I mean, he said that, and this is an application, I think, of that. He, they weren't saved, and he, wasn't, he was done. Other texts, but he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone raises from the dead. And that's what's going to happen. He's going to raise from the dead, and they're not going to see it. Remember in Mark when he performed a miracle, uh, casting out a demon? The scribes came down from Jerusalem, and what did they say? He's the devil. He's possessed by Beelzebul, another example of their hardened hearts, permanent blindness. Another powerful verse is when you finish this, so th this section here, we finish it, we go to chapter 8, verse 13. This is powerful. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Just think of that verse. Leaving them, he embarked and went to the other side. End of their ministry to them. Light leaves a dark area. Darkness hasn't understood it, and the light leaves the darkness. Any other thoughts on that? I think it's a really powerful illustration and a real visual example of teaching us about repentance and the Gentiles and the Jewish unbelief and through the story Mark gives us. Okay, let's move a little further. Uh, Mark, verse 14. This is the lesson, verse 14 through 21, on the bread and the leaven. Okay, this is another Great teaching moment, really interesting. So the, the uh, disciples are hungry. They're worried about food. They forgot to take the bread. There's seven full baskets, right? They get in the boat, and they forget to bring one of them, apparently. And so they're hungry on the boat. And uh, they forgot to take the bread, didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them, and he was giving them orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So now Jesus mentions Herod, okay? So... Jesus says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew. So Matthew's account of this, Jesus says, watch out for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here it's the Pharisees and Herod. The point being, uh, Jesus is clearly talking not about physical bread. The disciples say, begin to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Don't you see or understand? He's like, I just left those people who had these demands for a sign. And I just showed you how they're never going to see the signs that you see, those wicked people. Now we're getting a boat, we're leaving them, and he says, beware of their leaven. It's, basically, he, it's a teaching moment, right? He is telling them something beyond just physical bread, and they just don't get it. So he explains it here. Why are you discussing about, why are you talking about bread, basically? Don't you understand what I just went through and what I'm saying? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? So it's a, it's a rebuke because they do have eyes. He tells us earlier that you know the believers do have eyes. They will be able to see. They will understand the mysteries of God. This is a mild rebuke, saying, basically saying, you have eyes. Why, why don't you see what I'm saying to you? Why are you still worrying about food? Don't you see that this is like another parable? This is a parable to you about the leaven of the Pharisees. I'm speaking about their teaching. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and people like Herod and, um, and the scribes. So the leaven of the Pharisees would be legalism, hypocrisy, self-righteousness. We have these laws. We have these rules. We do it. You don't. So legalism is their leaven. 
Leaven of the Sadducees is what? It's, it's, um, the Sadducees were pragmatic. They were materialistic. They were secular. They, they were sort of working with the Herod. They, they wanted the, the political um, power. They, they liked that. Go ahead. <laughs> and the Pharisees are your Republicans. The Pharisees were great moralists. Hmm. Everything was was about morality, and you know they they tried to control the people yeah. through their system of morality. And the Sadducees cared nothing about God. Denied uh, the you know uh, resurrection. Denied angels. Denied anything supernatural. But they were all about maintaining their political. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and their traditions with the people. So, so you, you know, have something we can relate to today. You know? Yes, I think so. Yeah. By a different angle. Interesting analogy. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with it exactly, but I think you would divide it among. Uh, well, I don't want to go there, but I think it's an interesting analogy. Yeah, I, I, but uh, the the point is the. Uh, I think the Republicans and Democrats are the Sadducees, but we'll go there. Um, I had to get that in. Right. But the point is, the Pharisees are legalists. The Sadducees ones were, were secular, materialistic. They, they controlled the temple. You know, they, they robbed from the temple and made profit from the sacrificial system and all that. And then the Herod is really immorality. I mean, that's what his leaven is, is um, secularism, but really strong immorality. We know what Herod was like. We talked about him a few weeks ago. So he, he, Jesus, this is a teaching moment. Uh, beware of their false teaching. That's what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples. And then he reminds them about his miracles, breaking the bread for the 5,000, 4,000, and he's saying, um, I want you to, to guys to start thinking more spiritually. Think a little deeper here. Remember all that I've done. Really, the only one that I can think of recently that really picks upon Jesus' analogy is that Gentile woman who right. asked for food. So, you know, Jesus could share with the parable, and she instantly picks up on who the symbols are yeah. and feeds it back to him. Yeah. And she's, you know, like, she's the one, mm-hmm. so the theme is those that should get it don't. It is, it is thoroughly ironic, right? Yes, it is such a contrast. And she's, and she's called a Canaanite woman in Matthew. So even more so, she's pagan. She shouldn't know anything. And she gets the, the analogy. Yeah, it's wonderful. Hope for us that Jesus gives us ears and eyes and insight for the Holy Spirit to understand things that our, our own minds couldn't. All right. A few more minutes because I want to finish this out. So it's coming okay, to the... To the uh, the final, to me, the climax, because I, I've always liked this miracle because I didn't understand it, because we teach so much about Jesus' miracles and how a mark of a true miracle is it's instantaneous, it's complete, it is a work of God, there's no ambiguity, as opposed to modern-day miracles, which often are not. They're sham and they're fake and they're not complete and it's just not a miracle. So this one is a little bit different, and, and I think you guys might come to the same conclusion I have about explaining this, this miracle. So let me just read it for you real quick. They came to Bethsaida, 
brought a blind man to Jesus, implored him to touch him. Jesus took him by the hand, brought him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men. I see them like trees walking around. He laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So partial healing, then complete healing. Though, unlike the partial healings today, it, it really was almost instantaneous. It's, okay, so there's, it is in a way instantaneous, but it's not. It's in two stages. So any thoughts from you guys about this miracle? I think it teaches something pretty clear but on the heels of all we've just learned about the apostles and the other miracles. Exactly. He probably wasn't blind all his life. Blindness was a common condition back then, according to the historical accounts. Don't know how he became blind, but yeah, clearly it seems like he wasn't blind all his life because he saw something moving and said it's men. So, yeah. 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 Perfectly. Yeah. He ended up perfect clarity. Yeah. Relatively instantly. Any other thoughts about the, the stages? Um, is it more about his kind of developing belief, the guy that he's healing? Mm -hmm. It's more about his belief as opposed to someone else's ability that he told him to look. He looked intently and then his eyes were restored. Oh, right. So you're saying, right, once a guy could partially see, then he looks, he's motivated and he looks more intently in his, his efforts and his sanctification maybe, right, yeah, can give him more clarity. Yeah, that's a good thought. Any other thoughts about it? Well, I think, and we'll end here. We'll, we'll probably revisit it last week. To me, I think it is a clear, vivid um, example of the disciples, right? I think it is the disciples are seeing like they're seeing trees walking right now, right? And they're, and they're like, oh, we're going to get food. But yet, they're following Jesus. They have some sight. They're his people, and they're saved. Um, and then, ultimately, they will have much more clarity. And, in fact, in this gospel, the next section, Peter will have the real clarity when he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. So I think that that's what this is, that this is saying. Um, it's my opinion, though. Uh, MacArthur seemed, talks about that a little bit, but uh, other commentators say, well, we're not sure what this is, but the point is, basically, it is a complete miracle, ultimately, but... It fits to me that this is an example to the apostles of, or the disciples of what their journey is like. It's still a complete miracle in a very, very, very short period of time. That's right. That is, we don't want to gloss over that fact. It's still a complete miracle in just a few moments as opposed to yes. the shenanigans we see right. today. Yeah, so it does still fit our paradigm and our understanding of a, of a true miracle. It's complete and it's instantaneous. Yeah. And then was faithful. That's what I say. He had temporary sight, and then he had, or, 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 yeah, temporary partial sight, like the apostles sort of do, or the disciples, I keep saying that at this point, but we'll get more complete clarity ultimately. It says he used his, his saliva. You know, it's yeah. similar to uh, John chapter 9, where uh -huh. Jesus heals the man who was born blind. He does it on the Sabbath, and he uses 
earth is mm -hmm. instance. Yep. And so he takes, you know, that their complaint, the Pharisees complain against him is he, he healed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was after creation was done. Uh -huh. and yeah, God right. Rested. So here's God incarnate showing the same act of creation that made man. He scoops up earth and just like God Mm -hmm. breathed the moisture of his breath into the man. Yeah. He uses saliva to make a paste. And with the same raw materials that he made Adam, yep. he fixes right. So this is, I think, a point I like to make about miracles is, well, there's several principles. One, he can perform miracle however he wants. He can use whatever imagery he wants. He, he doesn't need to touch people. He, can, he does it all kinds of ways. So each miracle seems to be really unique and different and individualized. The second point is a miracle has always a secondary purpose. It's not just about healing the blindness. It has some other reason. And depending on the setting and the audience, he may use different imagery to tell us a different truth. So I think it's a beautiful way to understand miracles. As you read through the Gospels, and you see it is helpful to consider why, why did he do it this way. But don't go too far because it, it, if it's not written, we can't have doctrine on it, but we can appreciate some of the imagery that surrounds it. Right. is something physical mm -hmm. that points to something that's true in a spiritual sense. Right. Yep, very good. So if you look at the timeline for the uh, enlightenment of the disciples, so at this point they could understand parables, right? Pharisees could not. He allowed the disciples at some point to understand parables, right? Well, he said earlier, even in Mark, he said, um, well, for the most part, they... At this point in Mark, and I think most of the Gospels, they, they mostly don't ever understand it unless Jesus explains it to them. Okay. And so, and he made that point a couple of chapters back. He said, to you, it has been given, and at that time, what was given was Jesus physically explaining to them what the parables went, because he would take them aside. He said he explained the parables to the apostles, to the disciples. Um, and then we made the analogy, for us now, we have Jesus, in a way, teaching us the truths through the Holy Spirit and his word. And so, um, and the hmm? And, and the yeah, and teaching, right? Thank you. Yeah. So, but then after he rose from the dead, he enlightened them to understand the scriptures. Yeah, he opened their eyes. Then they begin to really, the Holy Spirit hits them, and, and they're like, ah, I can understand the scriptures a lot more. And then salvation in first Acts. Yeah, Acts one. Acts two is the Pentecost. Yeah. Yeah, I have that here. Yes, I think so too. Uh, well, a couple more verses then we'll go. First Peter 2, verse 2 and 3 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Another imagery of growth, like an infant. Second Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. So, yeah, there is an imagery of us growing in the Lord. Very good. Thank you. We'll see you next week.